Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about the Christmas story. We've talked about how it's familiar yet fascinating. It's miraculous, but somehow it's still relevant to our everyday lives. And how the Christmas story has everything that a story needs in order to be a great story, because that's exactly what it is. The Christmas story is a great story. Uh, you may believe it's a true story, or you may not believe it's a true story, but as I've said, either way, I think you have to admit it is a great story. It's a story that's recorded in the opening pages of the New Testament. Matthew writes about it, and specifically, Luke writes about it. And as this story that we call the Christmas story, as it opens up in the New Testament, it's really important for all of us to know that the Christmas story doesn't begin in the New Testament. It actually begins in the Old Testament. And the story of Christmas actually begins with a promise. It begins with a promise that God made to Abraham who's regarded as the father of faith, the father of the Jewish nation. God made Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 12. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna make your name great. And I'm gonna make your name great because one day, one of your descendants is gonna be born. And through that descendant, the whole world is going to be blessed. Imagine how unthinkable that promise must have seemed to Abraham, how improbable, impossible that promise sounded to Abraham that one day, one of his future sons, one of his future descendants would in some way bless the entire world. And from that moment, the moment that God made that promise to Abraham, the Old Testament is the record of Abraham's descendants waiting on God to keep that promise. God promised Abraham that he would have a son. God promised Abraham that one day he would father a family that would become a nation, that would become a kingdom. And that kingdom would give birth to a king that would bless the entire world, that would rule over the entire world. And from the moment that God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and from the moment that God reiterated that promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is the story of God's people. The Old Testament is the story of God's people waiting on God to keep what seemed like an improbable, impossible promise. It was the story of God's people trying to cling to faith because as they clung to faith, that became their hope, a hope for a brighter tomorrow, a hope for a day when peace would come, when righteousness would rule over the entire world in a way that the world had never seen before. And really, in all the stories that we read about in the Old Testament, that is the story. It is the story of God making a promise, and it is the story of God's people fighting to believe, doing all they can to believe that one day God would indeed keep that promise. So as the New Testament ends, that promise has not been kept. Matter of fact, that promise as the Old Testament ended, that promise that God made Abraham and David, it never seemed more impossible because the nation of Israel had become the punching bag of the nations. They'd been ransacked by Babylon and then Babylon gave way to Persia and Persia gave way to the Greeks. And then as we open up the pages of the New Testament, there's a new empire that is controlling Israel. There's a new empire that has defeated the seemingly hopes of the people of Israel. And it's the empire of Rome. And all through the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, not only had Israel become the punching bag of the nations, but God was seemingly nowhere to be found. God had gone silent. There had been no miracles in 500 years and God had not spoken in 400 years. 
So as we open up the pages in the New Testament, there is a small group of people clinging to faith. There is a small group of people, a remnant of people, trying to believe the best they can that one day God will keep the promise that he made to Abraham. God will keep the promise that he made to David and God will keep the promise that he made through the prophets down through the generations. So when we open up the gospel of Luke, many people have walked away from faith. Many people had given up the notion that God would ever keep that promise. But all the while, in those 400 years of silence, when God was silent and many believed that God was absent, when we open up the Gospel of Luke chapter two, when we start reading the Christmas story, we realize God may have been silent, but he was not absent. And when it seemed like God was doing nothing at all, God was up to something big. And this is how Luke begins the Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Serenius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Luke begins the Christmas story showing us what was going on in world history. He introduces us to Caesar Augustus. He introduces us to Serenius as a way of reminding us that when God is silent, God is not absent. And God is working, even in the shadows and even in the darkness, God is working to bring about everything that needs to be brought about in order for him to keep his promises. God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a promise to David. And even though the Old Testament ends on a note of disappointment, a group of people disappointed that God had yet to keep his promise, God was moving and God was working. God was sovereign and God was providential. As Daniel said, he was raising up kings and he was taking others down. He was setting up the kingdoms of this world to bring about the birth of the king of all kings. God, like a checkerboard, was moving the pieces around to prepare the world for Christmas. God was very much involved in the affairs of men. God was very much involved in the details of people's lives because as God moved all things according to the purposes of his own will, as God moved the world closer to Christmas, it didn't seem like God was moving the world closer to Christmas. For the nation of Israel, it seemed like all hell had broken loose and it seemed like nothing was getting better. But as the apostle Paul would say in Galatians chapter four, verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And this is what the Christmas story means for you and me. It means that God is in control. God is providential. God is sovereign. And even though God may at times seem silent, God is not absent. God is not absent in your life and God is not absent in my life. God is there in the shadows of your life and mine. He is working in the details. He is working through the details. And as Paul said in the book of Ephesians, he is working all things out according to the purpose of his own will. 
God is there. He's active. He's in our world. He's in your life. He's in my life. And he's moving the world closer to where he wants to take us, closer to the fulfillment of all of his promises. And the Christmas story reminds us that every promise God makes, God keeps. It reminds us that God is in control. It reminds us that God can be trusted. And it reminds us that God can be trusted to be in control. And so here's what that means for you personally. It means that your life and my life, that there's nothing beyond God's providential and sovereign control. It means that nothing that's happened in your life is outside of an explanation. Everything has come from God's hand or everything has come through God's hand. It means that one day when you tell the story of your life, you will tell the story of your life looking back and you will see the providential, gracious hand of God at work in your life and you'll be able to tell the story of your life. That even in the darkest moments, even in the hardest moments, even in the most painful moments, God was there and he was working things out for your good and for his glory. And that's what we're reminded of at Christmas, that God is in control. God can be trusted and God can be trusted to be in control. And one day when we tell our stories, when we tell the messy stories of our life, we will be able to look back and see how a sovereign hand was there in the midst of the good and in the midst of the bad. And when we tell our stories, and one day we will, we will tell the story of how everything, everything was turned for our good. And it was there all along for His glory.
On the night that Jesus was born, Luke begins to take our focus away from Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. And he takes our focus out on the dark hills of Judea where he's gonna introduce us to a most unexpected part of the Christmas story. And we find this in Luke chapter two and we pick it up in verse eight. Luke says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. When an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, he is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had told them. Now, as we read this part of the Christmas story that so many of us have heard since childhood, it's real easy to forget that this part of the Christmas story found in Luke chapter two is part of the entire gospel of Luke. This biography, this story, this narrative that Luke is writing for the world to introduce Jesus to the world. And Luke is writing this story with a point in mind. There's something very specific that Luke wants to communicate to the readers and the hearers of those who will read or hear the words of his gospel. And I think that the point of Luke's gospel is found in Luke chapter 19, where he quotes Jesus, where Jesus said one day, the Son of Man has come, speaking of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's how Luke thought of Jesus. And that was the story that Luke wanted to tell, that Jesus had come to seek and to save those who didn't have it together, to seek and to save after those who didn't measure up, to seek and to save after the irreligious, to seek and to save after those who had made a mess of things, for those who were hurting and those who were broken and those who were not good at being good. That was the story that Luke wanted to tell because all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we find stories of misfits, and outsiders coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Unlike the religious establishment of his day, Jesus does not reject them, but Jesus receives them and he introduces them to the grace of God and he invites them in to the family of God. This is the story that Luke is telling. And this is the story that he begins to tell from the very beginning in the Christmas story. So he introduces us to a group of shepherds 
Now, when we think about shepherds, we think, oh, how great to be able to take care of animals, to be out there and to look over the sheep and to feed the sheep and to protect the sheep. But shepherds in the first century, shepherds in Palestine, it was not a profession which was celebrated, at least by the religious establishment, because the religious establishment had excommunicated shepherds. They had told the shepherds, there's no place for you in the temple. And if there's no place for you in the temple, that effectively meant you had no pathway for forgiveness. Shepherds in these days that Luke is writing about, these were the misfits of those days. Uh, these were the outsiders of the day. This was the group of people who had been told all of their life by religion, God has no place for someone like you. So they had been beaten up and left for dead by religion. Religion had told them you're unloved, you're unwanted, you're unholy, you're uninvited. And so it's no coincidence that as Luke tells the story of Christmas, the very first people that hear the announcement of the birth of the baby Jesus, the savior of the world, the son of God. It's not the scholars in Alexandria. It's not the high priest in Jerusalem. It's not the Senate or Caesar in Rome. It's a group of misfits, outsiders, excommunicated group of shepherds that hears the story that a savior has been born. And I think that's why the angel must have been so passionate and excited that night to show up on the dark hills of Judea to announce to a group of shepherds that the light has come into the world because a savior has been born to you this night in the city of David, the Messiah, the Lord, the savior of the world. The angel spoke to the shepherds that night and said, I bring you good news that causes great joy. And then here was the key part. This was the point that Luke was going to make for the rest of his gospel, for all the people. No exemptions, no exceptions, nobody's disqualified. Everybody is invited into the grace of God to have a seat at the table as a part of the family of God. And so Luke says, good news, great joy for all the people. And that is the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is that light has come into a dark world. And for a group of people who don't measure up, and for a group of people who aren't good at being good, and for a group of people like me and like you, who often and most always make a mess of things, a Savior has come. And that is good news. The good news is God loves you. And God loves you just the way you are. God loves you no matter what you've done. God loves you no matter what you're doing. And God loves you no matter what you will do. The good news is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And the good news is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. The good news is there's nothing now that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor depth nor angels or principalities nor anything created can separate you from the love of God that is now in Christ Jesus. The good news is there is now no condemnation to those that are found in Christ Jesus. The good news is that wherever sin abounds, the grace 
grace of God much more abounds. The good news is that if we need forgiveness, He is faithful and just to forgive us when we ask Him. The good news is, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The good news is, as far as the east is from the west, so far can He remove our sins and transgressions from us. The good news is, no matter how far we've wandered away from home, our Heavenly Father is inviting us to come back to Him. That's the good news. And the angel said, that's good news that should cause great joy. Or as David said in the Psalms, happy is he, joyful is she who has had their sin forgiven. To know that when God sees me, to know that when God sees you, that he sees us as though we have never sinned. Because the good news is, he that knew no sin would become sin for us so that we could be right with God. And that night, on that first Christmas night, when the shepherds showed up to a group of misfits, outsiders not good at being good shepherds, who had been told all of their life that God has no place for you, that God doesn't love you, the good news of Christmas was there's no one that God doesn't love. And there's no place that God's grace cannot reach. I love the quote that Brennan Manning offers to us about the grace of God. He says, it's a vulgar kind of grace. He says, this vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, it's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox or the super religious or the self-righteous. And it will seem like a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibilities of adults. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all of our might to try to find something or someone it can't cover. He says grace is enough because Jesus is enough. And that really is the good news of Christmas, that the grace of God has come near, that those who are far off can be brought near because God, when we couldn't get to Him, He came to us and He extends to us the grace of God and He invites us all in to the family of God, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, you're invited in.
will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. On the night that the angels appeared over the dark rolling ridges of Judea and made their announcement that behold, tonight in the city of David, a savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Not only did their message and not only did their announcement disturb a small group of shepherds who were out in the fields taking care of their flock at night, but in time their message and their announcement and the implication of their announcement would unsettle an entire religious establishment and dismantle an entire empire. The idea that in the city of David, a savior had been born who was Christ the Lord was an announcement with such incredible consequence that eventually the entire world would be disrupted by this announcement. And in time, ultimately, the entire universe would feel the wake of that night's event. Because that evening, there among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, when most of the world wasn't looking, 
and when most of the world wasn't even paying attention enough to notice. In the cold and in the dark, something was heard. And it was the, it was the sound of a baby's cry. But it was more than a baby's cry. This baby's crying, it interrupted the dark silence of the night. But more than that, it interrupted the dark silence of the age. Because it was much more than a baby's cry. It was the sound of hope. It was the sound of compassion. It was the sound of forgiveness. It was the sound of love. The baby that was crying there in Bethlehem on that particular night, that was the sound of a king being born. That was the sound of a savior that was stepping onto the scene. It was the sound of promises being kept. It was the sound of light breaking in to the darkness. It was the sound of Christmas. And that night on the first Christmas, the seen and the unseen world came together. The spiritual and the physical, they came together at a dramatic point of intersection where God, who knows no before and he knows no after, he stepped in to time and to space. And God, who has all power and knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin and experienced what one particular writer called the ominous restraints of mortality. And here we are 2,000 years later, 6,300 or so miles away from where it all happened in a little less than a week. All of us along with about 2 billion or so people on this planet will stop what they're doing and celebrate and commemorate the birth of a baby. Not a baby born in a royal family in Athens or to a scholarly family in Alexandria and not there in Rome, but a baby that was born in the backwaters of the first century province called Palestine where nobody wanted to go and where nobody wanted to be from. A baby that was born there in Judea, in Bethlehem. And on Christmas, we will celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth and we will tell the story we will read the story of Christmas and we will sing songs about Christmas in order to commemorate and to celebrate and hopefully grow in our understanding and in our awe of what took place on that first Christmas when God became a man when God came near when the creator who flung the universe into motion and the creator who hung stars and planets into place, when that creator stepped into his own creation to chase down and win back a rebel race, men and women, and like me. And so when we think back on Christmas, and we should, when we reflect back on Christmas, and we should, when we contemplate it and we turn it over and we think about it and we give energy to our thinking about it. When we think back on that first Christmas, more times than not, we find that our words and our intellects, they fail us as we try to describe and grasp just how profound and how enormous what happened that night actually was. The apostle Paul who wrote almost half of the New Testament and who was a 
Jesus hater before he became a Jesus follower, a, a towering intellect in his own day, uh, a man who had a commanding uh, hold on three different languages, who studied at the feet of a revered teacher by the name of Gamaliel, a guy who was a prolific writer, a keen thinker uh, with a broad vocabulary. 60 years after the first Christmas and 30 years or so after he became a follower of Jesus, after he became an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, Paul sat down with pen in hand and with a scroll. And he was writing a letter to a group of Christians to try to describe Christmas, to try to put words to Christmas, to try to describe the profundity and the enormity and the consequence of what happened on that first Christmas. And he turned it over and he turned it over and he turned it over and he went through all the words in his vocabulary. He went through three different languages and analogies and turns of phrases and metaphors and all the things that he could leverage to communicate about that first Christmas. And after he, he sat there for a while and perhaps after he walked around for a moment to think about how he could describe that first Christmas, he finally smiles and he writes these words. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul would say, when I try to think about Christmas and what Christmas means to me and what Christmas means to you and what Christmas means to the world and what Christmas ultimately will mean to the universe, he says, it's indescribable. Or as another translation said, thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. Paul would say, what happened at Christmas is just, it's inexpressible, it's indescribable, it's ineffable. It's just too good to even try to tell you about it. It's, it's too precious beyond telling. But even though it's indescribable, we should really try to put some words to it. And even though it's too wonderful for thought, we should really try to put some thought to it to consider, to contemplate, to feel the weight to try to understand the consequence, the blessing, the gift of Christmas. And that's what I wanna do. I just want us to think about it for a moment, what it means to us, what it means for us, what it means to the world. A.T. Pearson, even though Paul said it was indescribable, this is how he tried to put words to it. He said, on Christmas, the one who resigned the throne and the crown of heaven exchanged the radiant robe of the universal king for the garment of a servant. Just think about this. He descended to death, condescended to human want and woe and wickedness, lay in a lowly cradle in a cattle stall in Bethlehem and hung upon a cross of shame at Calvary that even those who crucified him might be forgiven. Can you span, can you understand, can you imagine the chasm between the throne of the universe and that cross? A crown of storm, uh, a crown of stars and a crown of thorns? The worship of the host of heaven and the mockery of an insulting mob? There is nothing like it in history, not even in fable. He says, how can we understand a man with human infirmities without human sin or sinfulness, poor yet having at his disposal universal riches, weak and weary yet having the exhaustless energy of God, unable to resist the violence and the insults of his foes, yet able to summon legions of angels at word or wish, suffering yet incapable of anything but perfect bliss, dying yet having himself neither beginning of days nor end of years. You see, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening, because what's happening in your life and what's happening in the world and what's happening in our communities and what's happening in some of our families and what's happening in hospitals and what's happening in communities all across this nation, it may not be such a good thing. 
And what's happening in your life and what's happening in your world may not be a source of peace and it may not be a source of joy and it may not feel good. But Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening, but because of what happened that first Christmas. And when we think about it, and we should, and when we try to describe it, and we should, it should provoke awe. It should provoke amazement. It should provoke gratitude. It should provoke worship when we think about what happened that first Christmas. Augustine, in a way that only he could say it, said this, as he helps us think about it a little more. He says, he it is by whom all things were made and who was made one of all things. Who is the revealer of the father, the creator of the mother, the son of God by the father without a mother, the son of a man by the mother without a father the Word who is God before all time. The Word made flesh at a fitting time, the maker of the Son made under the Son, ordering all the ages from the bosom of the Father, hallowing a day of today from the womb of the mother, remaining in the former coming forth from the latter, author of heaven and the earth, sprung under the heaven out of the earth, unutterable wise in his wisdom, a babe without utterance, filling the world, lying in a manger. You see, at Christmas, one of the things that should cause us amazement is that God found a way to come near without provoking us to fear. God found a way of coming near without causing us to fear. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they walked and they talked with God, it says, in the cool of the day. When they sinned and failed, they ran away from God in fear. When the nation of Israel when they met with God at Sinai and Moses was up there speaking with God and there was lightnings and thunderings, it says the whole nation experienced fear. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, there was a sense of fear. The nation of Israel had compartmentalized God to this place called the holiest of holies in the tabernacle and the temple. And God was unapproachable. God was so holy. God was so incredibly powerful. He was unapproachable except for one time of the year by one person, the high priest. And so the nation of Israel had this, this incredible fear of God so much so that they were not, even, uh, not only afraid to speak his name, but they were afraid to even spell or write down his name. But yet at Christmas, God made a surprise visit he made a surprise appearance in the most humble of fashion, in a way that would not provoke fear, but in a way that would seem approachable and humble. He came to us in the form of a baby. Someone said that in eternity, Jesus rested at the bosom of the father without a mother. In time, Jesus rested on the bosom of a mother without an earthly father. God who in Eden's garden took from the body of a man, a motherless woman in Bethlehem's barn, brought a fatherless man from the body of a woman. Jesus, who was the ancient of days, became the infant of days. He was born older than his mother, but the same age of his father. The God of eternity clothed in honor and majesty and was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He who made man was made in the likeness of men. And he who created the angels was made a little lower than the angels. He who said before Abraham was, I am, was born 2,000 years after Abraham died. He who was Abraham's seed was Abraham's savior, and he who was David's son was David's Lord. At Christmas, it was Emmanuel, it was God with us. It was the God who called Abraham out of Ur that was born in Bethlehem. 
It was the cloud by day and the fire by night, the presence of God that led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, which was born in Bethlehem that night. It was the voice out of the burning bush that spoke to Moses on the backside of the Midian desert that was born in Bethlehem that night. It was the captain of the Lord's host that met Joshua there on the banks of the Jordan River before they would go in to conquest the land. That's who was born in Bethlehem that night. God had come near, God had made a visitation. And John, who was a follower of Jesus, summed it up this way and said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, but on Christmas, the word or God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That the God of the Old Testament, this God that existed in the shadows and the murkiness of the darkness, that no one could really sketch out his face and no one could aptly describe exactly what he was like. He came near. He was born among us. He dwelled among us, John said, and we beheld the glory of God. We saw his glory and the fact that he had grace and truth, not a balance of the two, but full measure of both. He never compromised truth and he never put a condition on grace. And when he did so, we saw the glory of God. It was the truth of God that says, I know who you are. It was the truth of God that says, I know everything about you, every thought, every deed, every desire but it's the grace of God who says, there's no need for you to hide and there's no need for you to pretend and there's no need for you to be afraid. Even though I know you, I love you just as you are. It is the truth of God that says we're guilty, but it is also the grace of God that, which declares that we are forgiven. And John says, this is the glory that we beheld that was made possible because of Christmas. He goes on, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. In other words, Jesus pulled back the curtain and let us discover what God was truly like. In other words, if you wanna know, John says, what God is like, then look at Jesus because God has come near. It's a tragedy that so many people who were raised in church or by Christian parents or had friends who were Christians or read or came to the wrong conclusions that they grow up into adulthood with this tragic, harmful, debilitating, crippling view of God. And all through their life, they carry the baggage of guilt and shame and fear because there is this misunderstanding of God because once upon a time there was this misrepresentation of God. And so many adults like you and like me go through life with this unhealthy idea of who God is because somewhere along the way within the religious establishment that we grew up in, they gave us a version of God that just doesn't measure up to Jesus. And John said, one of the great things about Christmas, one of the indescribable things about Christmas, Paul would say, is the fact that God came near. And now if you wanna know what God is like, if you wanna know what God thinks, if you wanna know what God believes about you and about this life, and about your past and about your future, then look to Jesus because he shows us what God is like. He shows us what God is like by what he says. And when Jesus teaches stories about a landowner who went out and got a group of employees first thing in the morning and said, hey, if you'll come work in my field, if you'll come work in my vineyard, 
I'm gonna give you a full day's work. I'm gonna give you a full day's pay. And the group of people said, yeah, we don't have a job. We'd love to come work in your vineyard. And then hours later at lunchtime, he goes out and the wealthy landowner, he goes out and he invites another group of people, says, hey, if you'll come work in my field, I'm gonna pay you. And then about an hour before closing time, about an hour before everybody was gonna punch their you know, card and go home, he goes out again and he invites another group of people, says, if you wanna come work in my field, if you'll come work in my field, I'm gonna pay you for it. And they said, sure, we'll be there. And so there was a group of people who had worked all day and a group of people who had worked half a day and a group of people who barely got there before the day was over. And when it came time to settle up, the wealthy landowner, everybody was expecting those who had worked the longest and the hardest to get paid the most. But the wealthy landowner paid everybody the same day's pay. Because Jesus was teaching us about what God was like. That God is not a person who pays wages for how hard you try or how good you are, but everything that God gives us and everything that God gives those around you, it is an act of grace because he does not pay wages. God gives gifts of grace. When Jesus said, if you wanna know how often you should forgive someone, I'm gonna tell you that it's 70 times seven because let me tell you about your heavenly father. Let me tell you about God. He keeps no record of wrong against those he's forgiven. He doesn't keep a secret file that he's always ready to pull up. He doesn't keep a score sheet on how well you've done or how bad you've done. When God forgives, it's settled, it's over, it's forgotten, it's buried. So don't go try to bury up what God has buried. Don't try to go seek after what God has cast away. When God forgives, it's over, it's settled, it's done. That's how God is with you. Jesus told stories and made outcasts and enemies the heroes of the story because he wanted us to know he doesn't see people the way we see people. He doesn't think about people the way that we think about people. He doesn't call people by groups or by labels. He doesn't love people in groups or by labels. He loves people as individuals. Jesus said, God is like a shepherd who has 99 good healthy sheep. But one was a troublemaker, one was a rebel, one got into trouble, one didn't listen, but the shepherd left the 99 to go bring back the one back into the fold. He said, that's what God's like. And when you're that one shepherd, when you're that one sheep that wanders away, that's what God is willing to do for you. He will leave everything else, drop everything else to come after you. He's like a father who had a rebellious son who goes off, spends all of his inheritance until he literally ends up in the hog pen of life And when he gets to the bottom and when he has no place to go, he goes back home and he finds a father with his arms open wide who welcomes him back into the family because Jesus said, that's what God is like. He taught us what God was like by what he said, but he also taught us what God was like by what he did. He sat with lepers, he touched them. He dined with tax collectors. He was known as a friend of sinners or as Brennan Manning said, he's the only God that man has ever heard of who loves sinners. He wept at the tomb of a friend because he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He knows what it's like to hurt and to grieve. When he saw sinners, he was moved with compassion, not anger. But in the ultimate act to show us what God was like, Jesus, that baby that was born in a manger who had grown up and was introduced to the world as the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sins of the world, the miracle worker from Galilee, was hung on a cross to show you and to show me how God feels about you and about me. 
Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate once and for all and to prove to you once and for all, to give you all the proof, to give me all the proof that we should ever need to know that God loves us no matter what. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. That you should never spend a moment of your life ever questioning whether God loves you. Don't ever pull aside into the corner of your dark world and wonder, have you expanded? Have you exhausted God's grace? Have you, you know, gone too far, stepped off the edge, and now God's through with you? God's washed his hands of you. Don't ever do that, God would say, because Jesus went to the cross to prove once and for all just how much he loves you. And on the cross, he was showing you how far grace will go. On the cross, he was showing you how far love would go for you. And then they took him down and buried him. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead. You see, Christmas is a great story, but it's only a part of the story. The cross and the resurrection, it's an even better part of the story. But it's not the best part of the story. Because the best part of the story is that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he led his disciples outside of Jerusalem and He ascended back to his father, and as he did, two angels appeared and looked at the men and women and said, men and women of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus, this same Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, this same Jesus which worked miracles in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, in Galilee, this same Jesus that you saw hung on the cross, this same Jesus which was buried and raised from the dead, this same Jesus one day will come again and a manger in Bethlehem and miracles recorded in the gospels and a cross and an empty tomb are there to remind you about the promise of God that is still left to be fulfilled when Jesus who came the first time will come again when the sky will open up and his lightning flashes from the east from the west he will appear once again And he will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And in that day, it says that the dead in Christ will rise first and everyone else in faith who are alive and remaining will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and forever and ever we will be with him. As he sits upon the throne over this earth, over this universe, and the knowledge of God will be like the sea that covers the earth. And in that day, as Ezekiel said, the desert will bloom flowers once again. They will study war no more because peace will fill the entire earth and sin and sorrow and death will be abolished once and for all. And we will live with him forever. And we will never question, we will never doubt how he feels about us and that he will love us forever because for the first time in a perfect way we will realize that he has already loved us forever from everlasting from everlasting he has cast his love upon us and when we think about Christmas we think about a good story when we think about a cross and an empty tomb we think about an even better story and when we think about the culmination when he takes sin, sorrow and death And everything that sin, sorrow, and death has touched and made wrong, he is going to undo the curse and make things right once again. And that is the best part of the story. And it's still yet to come. 
so we look back to the promise of Christmas being kept so we can look forward to the promise of when Jesus comes again and makes everything that's wrong with this world right once and for all. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that Christmas reminds us that you're a God of your word, that you made a promise and you kept it. Though there were some generations of men and women who gave up on you keeping that promise, it seemed too far removed. Too many generations had passed by, but God, just at the right moment, just when everything was right, you kept the promise of Christmas. You brought the world to that moment. Jesus, you were presented to the world by your cousin as the Lamb of God. And there on the cross, you became the sacrifice for our sin. You were buried and raised from the dead to prove once and for all that your sacrifice had been received. And there's nothing that we need to do to be right with you because you did all the heavy lifting. You did all the work. So God, I pray this Christmas that as we think about Christmas and feel the weight and the consequence of Christmas, that we'll be reminded that it is just part of a bigger, greater story, a story that still has fulfillment in the future. So we wait for that promise, just as men and women waited for the promise of Christmas. And we know, we believe, we declare that just at the right moment, when everything is as you want it to be, you will keep the promise and you will come again. And we look forward to that day with hope in our heart because it is indeed good news of great joy for all the people. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,